0: I'm Steve Backshall, and you're listening to The Aussie Wildlife Show.
1: All right, guys, welcome to The Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have John Barry, environmental realist with a passion for natural history. John, hey, man, how are you? Hi, I'm great. Great to be with you. Mate, thanks for having us at your house. We have been blown away this morning looking around, firstly, your amazing native garden, we could we could talk about on three episodes, but we've come here to talk to you about how you got involved with extinct Australian megafauna and particularly the snake that you have named after you, wanambi barrii. Yes, well I'm not sure what credit
2: it is to have a dead snake named after you but <laughs>
1: <laughs> take it <your> John <laughs> <clears throat>
0: um,
2: The circumstance in which I found myself collecting fossil bones was quite bizarre Uh, the first fossil bones I ever collected were from York Peninsula we were staying with our wife's relatives and um, he happened to mention that some fossil bones had been found in a quarry at Kurramolka which was only a few kilometres from their house and my ears obviously pricked up and sort of like wow you know I've never been anywhere where I could expect to find fossil bones would you like to have a look I can ring them up. We can get permission to go into the quarry and have a look. This is back in the mid-70s. And sure, off we went. Then we get into the quarry, big bluestone quarry, the best road metal anywhere on York Peninsula. And there's all these cracks and crevices and some of them quite high up the quarry wall, others down below, with um, different sediments in. A lot of it was reddish, which is the soil... Um, pitfall trap finding its way down into the cave system, which is very complex, that particular system. And there was plenty of material that we could poke around with at ground level. And I'm thinking, wow, this is special. I pick up a block of rock. And the words I reflect on are by Alfred Sherwood Romer, the famous American paleontologist, when he wrote something to the effect of, there is little romance in a man whose heart doesn't speed up when holding something that's been dead for this long so primitive and that's really a defining moment when you kick into sort of like this is reality you can find and touch this stuff from way back
1: Mm, and you're obviously very passionate about this i mean we just went into your um well, the next room over, some people might call that a dining room if it was anyone else, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've just got boxes of fossils and there's, there's inlets in the walls that are full of skulls from the prehistoric era. You've
2: got, you've, you've got it all wrong, Adrian. That is our dining room. That is. <laughs> when, when I was a little boy, we used to make chicken soup with all the bones in it, wings and legs and everything. My learning was eating the soup, dissecting the bones and reconstructing them on my side plate. <laughs> That's just morphed That's from that. It's an
1: extension. <laughs> so how did you get involved with the big giant python?
2: The, the circumstance that led me to that, I, I was a builder. I was moving to Canalpin to continue my building work, to get out of the city rat race. And um, a, a friend in Adelaide had invited me to go down to Maslin's Beach, or more particularly the Maslin Sand Pits, where they had found fossil leaves, about 40 million years old, he had permission to go in and collect some, some stuff this Sunday afternoon. So we go down there and um, finished up down on the Maslins Beach proper with all the clothing issues that occur down there.
1: Um, <laughs> those very
2: focused, very focused <laughs> on the fossils in the cliffs. That was fine. And uh, he happened to say to me, he said, oh, John, he said the museum are working down at Narocourt on um, weekend. I think it might have been the first weekend of February. Uh, this was 1981. And I thought, oh, wow. Moving down here, I'd already pre-organised some work. One job was for Dalgetty's at Kingston for two weeks during the school holidays. Camped on the beach with my wife and four daughters. Me working five days a week. The weekend coincided with the excavation at Henshke's Quarry in Narra by the museum. We were on a loose end. I rang up Neville Pledge, the curator of fossils, and said, Neville, could we come over and have a look? Oh, yeah, bring the kids too. They're good for getting into tight
1: spaces.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, look, but he was quite prepared to engage us. We knew each other from a few conversations and interactions over the years. So that that led us there. And um, uh, when we we get there, the whole family, including my five-year-old daughter rope ladders, learning how to go up and down, the systematics are collecting, making sure everything's labelled appropriately. And uh, Neville took me alongside and uh, we're working away there and he picked up a, a tooth. And he said, oh John, he said, see that tooth? He said, that's, that's an extinct kangaroo's tooth, that's a stenurus, a bilophodont tooth, a molar. And here's a, here's a present day kangaroo tooth, it's got the sweeping curves, different, one eats coarser vegetation. And I think, well, that's nice, you know, sharing the knowledge. It was quite encouraging. So some time later, I took a break, went up to the surface where my wife was diligently working on a sieve hung on a frame with about a dozen other workers. And um, I was able to point out, oh, that tooth was an extinct kangaroo tooth and this was a present-day one. And uh, I thought, oh, that was interesting. I go down below to continue working with Neville And everyone working on the sieves is coming to Julie saying, oh, you know something, do you? Oh, yeah, this is an extinct kangaroo. And that's it. present. That was the limit of my knowledge. That was the limit of her knowledge. But she was an expert. And then the commandant come around saying, get back to work, you guys. You're not supposed to be here getting stuff. You're not here to learn about it. (laughs) So that was a bit profound. But the regimentation was necessary so that the material didn't get mixed up. Very much a system needed to get good scientific value out of it. And um, we got invited to go back again, I think it was in May, their next dig. I thought that's nice, you know, go down, repeat that exercise. At the end of that, uh, Neville got the team together and said, Righto, folks, the next dig will be at the Camoan Forest Cave, a few caves southwest of, uh, southeast of Narra Court. He said, We can't expect to get anything else from here. And my ears are sort of going, Really? You don't think there's anything else left here? Uh, maybe I wasn't listening to some of the other things he said. There might have been safety issues and da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> but you, you take into context a, a museum excursion like that, the cost, the budgetary constraints to get teams down in your vehicles, but, you know, it is quite an incredible exercise. So anyway, that passion kicked in and I thought to myself, hmm, if you reckon there's nothing left. So a couple of weeks later, I rang up the owner of the quarry, Laurie Hensky, and said, Laurie, I've been down with the museum. They've abandoned you. Might it be all right if I come back at times and just check whether anything else turns up with my wife, my family, friends? Always supposed that would be all right. We continued that for the next 17 years. Wow. We finished up taking out close to 500 tonne of dirt by hand. Wow. And um, at one stage we had a tunnel that was um, over 20 metres long going into the cave system. That produced a lot of very interesting material, but the real quirk to the Wanambi story was... We got to a point at the end of that 60 feet where the rock ceiling in this cavern became sand, and you couldn't dig under it. I had building experience; I knew about propping and shoring and risk factors, and we were pretty, pretty careful. But it's not what you would expect to be invited to do with today's concern for people's safety. And anyway, I got to the end of that, and I thought, no, I'm not going to dig any further and put at risk a collapse. There's no way. So I abandoned that and thought, before I go, I've got a plastic shovel that i made out of a piece of sewer pipe. I used to have a gold detector and you could use a plastic shovel to wave stuff across it. And that was just laying alongside I me. Mean, I thought, if I reach forward as far as I can reach into that chamber at the end of the excavation and dig up, there might be a solid ceiling just a few inches above. We might be able to continue further. Digging up's wonderful, the it just falls out, you know, it's fantastic. <laughs> and you just touch it and it falls away and builds a bit of a mound on the floor where we'd been working. And uh, after about four feet of sand came out, there was an almighty collapse of dust and rock and pebbles and came down through this hole that I'd dug up. I opened the hole up a little bit and we'd actually discovered a cave by digging up into it. Wow. That's a bit <laughs> unexpected. So there was quite a, quite a moment I opened it up big enough, put some timbers in to make it safe, and got a photograph of my wife and the four daughters all in this cave that we discovered by digging up into it. But we still got to a point where we could not dig any further for safety reasons. We had to abandon it because of that. What do we do now? Oh, well, there might be something left if we go back to where we started and move a bit more stuff. We'd been climbing over Wenambi all that time. He was in a lower layer under which we had not investigated. Fundamentally, the cross-section of the cave was something like a a capital A, where you have a rather triangular-shaped chamber, but the legs drop away at each side, and we'd just taken the core of sediment out. Unknown to us at that time, most of that was relatively poor quality material because it had been trampled by animals moving through the cave. The remnants of meals was there in some places. The trampling had crushed to a pulp and you had even large teeth broken into smithers. We just accepted that's what was there. When we came back to the front and started, what can we do now? We started moving some more rocks from lower down and to the side and found that the extremities going down on either side were protected alcoves that had never been trampled. And so there were things in there that were well-preserved. And the echidna material I've worked on, most of that has come out of those areas. Absolutely superb stuff. What now happened to be in that layer that we hadn't ventured down into, Shifted some rocks and the sediment went down. As we dug through it, we found the bones were confined to a band of sediment, maybe 100 millimetres thick, slightly different colour to what was above and below. And on the eastern edge of it, there was a drop-off. It was like a delta where water had came down to the lowest point in the cave, washed sediment into this area where Wenambi's bones were, and then dropped off and different sediment washed in with a different event and wouldn't you'd have the banding sort of continue down. And so it was a pond in the floor of that cave. And Winambi probably died in the water. It was buried in a rather horizontal fashion, but there were no two bones next to each other that belonged next to each other. It was not articulate. It was okay. scattered.
1: So a lot of these caves, they're like um, pitfall traps for animals, aren't they? They fall into these limestone caves and can't get out. Absolutely. Historically.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the pitfall trap was where the museum had found a depression in the soil surface and had excavated that. It was about a metre in diameter, about six metres down to the floor of the cave. A classic pitfall trap. But what I'm seeing of the animals we've collected there, there were things coming and going it was very close, if we go 50 metres to the west of that site, there's the old crushing plant in the quarry. They were crushing road metal, making agricultural lime. That was built up against a limestone wall, which hadn't been hewn out by man. It was essentially the Canawinka Fault. Oh, it's not it. really an uplift, it was more of a down warp on the other side and the sea would have eroded anything on the seaward side of that and possibly that cliff maybe kilometres inland further than what the actual fault was, that would have had condominiums walk through it. Things would have lived in that cliff face. As the sea retreated, everything would have come and gone through holes and there would have no doubt been accesses into the chamber where we found Wernambi. Wernambi is an Aboriginal word for rainbow serpent. So there's several dialects that make variations on spelling... But it, it honours the rainbow serpent of mythological dreamtime.
1: Big giant snake. Mm. mm. And do you remember the moment that you first found it? Was it, was it complete or did you find a piece of the animal? One, one vertebrae. One vertebrae.
2: One vertebrae. Soon after that, I had a friend from Queensland down working with me and we found more. And I thought, hmm, we're going to the museum. I would need to talk to Neville about this. All this time... Well, at the beginning of this exercise, I hadn't been telling the museum what I was doing. Okay. Which was not, perhaps,
1: Proper. kosher. Yep. <laughs>
2: but Neville had ventured into the quarry at a later date, had caught up with the fact that I was working there, didn't seem to antagonise him too much. He rang me up and said, oh, John, I've, I've, I've seen where you've been working. He said, that looks so totally different to what we did, you might as well keep going. So by default, I sort of got a blessing to continue. And that was fine. The upshot was, eventually, we linked back in to where the museum had been digging. and So we'd come in through a back door. So I, I actually went with our friend from Queensland to the museum without any specimens, just dropped by, have a talk with Neville about some other things. And I happened to mention to him, well, Neville, we, we, we found some Wunambi vertebrae. And he looked at me rather shocked, he said, Oh, we never did. We worked there for 11 years and never found any Wenambi vertebrae. You know, how dare you? Mm. <laughs> Reaches over onto a shelf and grabs a, a Wenambi vertebrae off a shelf and says, Are you sure? It's like this. I said, Yep, spot on. Maybe a little bit smaller, but that's, that's what. Oh, this is a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, with that blessing, we were able to, to continue. We were very much more scientific. Being a rescue mission, a lot of things were done quite hastily. One circumstance, part whale on the quarry, comes to mind where the clay terrarossa sediments were quite compacted and there was almost no bones in it. And we want to get some stuff out. So I had a short-handled pick there, which I dug a, a chase across horizontally at an appropriate level and a, a slot down each side, probably a 300 mil or so in on the sides and underneath. And then I put the pick in the top and that block of clay drops basically on your lap. And I'm looking at half a skull in the wall, and half a skull in that block of clay. That was fantastic. You would never know that specimen had been broken. Clean it up, take all the dirt off. There wasn't a missing piece when you put it back together. You could not have done that by intersecting and try to work around it. That's just the serendipity of it.
0: When you found the vertebrae, take you back to that. Did that? Did you know instantly that it was an army, or you had to look into it? Well, I knew I knew enough that it was big snake because,
2: along with my work at Henschke's, When the Flinders University had students down there for 10 days or so each February, I was basically invited along to be a part of the team. And so I got my eye in on a lot of the material and they weren't common, but it had been described from vertebrae. Probably three or four digs, that's a weekend, two, sometimes three days later, that probably the most exciting part happened And by working more steadily through that band of sediment, I came out with a small macropod tibia, probably a betong. Attached to it with the patina of calcite that coats them was the dentary of Wenambi with all the teeth in full view. You don't tend to expect it just to come up and sit in front of you in the dig like that. You're more likely to get six pieces that you find later. That had been stirred up but that was that was a really defining moment so it was a step around get everyone together have a little talk and a celebration and
1: so how did that come to be you think the snake bit the animal but didn't i think it would be purely animal?
2: depositional that the okay. two were t- in contact as they got buried and the crust of calcite that forms around the bones was enough to actually just hold them together so it wasn't a a life action that led to it it was a fossil
1: circumstance where did the journey take you from here?
2: Well, the next the next element was once we had that that much material, we had to sort of look at hmm, there's some missing pieces. We had um, about three quarters of the surangular, which is the bone that attaches to the quadrate with the jaw hinges and joins onto the dentary. The hinge was missing, and it irked me greatly that. That was going to define the length of the skull, but that piece wasn't there. So I'd carefully kept all the sediment that had come through so I could revisit it. And I'm laying on what was a back lawn with a big screen, fly screen door. And I was tipping the sediment onto it, cutful by cutful, with a pair of tweezers, taking out that's obviously a piece of rock. That's obviously a tooth, and no, it's not Wanambi, That's a piece of bone. This one's a piece of bone, but it's got a dense look about the broken, fresh break on it. It's a bit of a creamy colour. That's a that's a maybe, size of a match head. Put that aside. We'll have a closer look at that later. I went through about two tonne of material like that. It took me weeks. And I found this little collection of chips that glued together to form the next section of the serangula, but we still didn't have the hinge. That was probably the point at which the trail had broken through it and crushed it, and one bit went to the left, one went to the right. And I went on for six months, stewing over. It's not there. I can't find it. And I walk into what was our office one day and open up an old jam cupboard I was given as a child to keep my stuff in, my bones and things. And there's a foam tray sitting in there with some bones on it. And I looked in there and I thought, oh, that looks odd. That little piece that was missing was on that tray all that time. <laughs> really? And I found the missing bit. If I didn't have the bits in between, you still wouldn't have had that circumstance. So, having been driven to search for every little fragment and being successful, when I finally put the two ends together, we had the complete specimen. That was topped.
1: Far out. Oh. How, how big, I mean, but well, there's two There's two species of Wanambi, isn't there?
2: So there there's, are.
1: There's Narracordensis and there's Barri. Yep. How big are these things?
2: Wanambi is debated by different paleontologists. I I estimate that a big specimen would get to six metres. Some people disagree. What we collected probably only measures three metres, but it's incomplete. There's some missing pieces. The, The skeleton wasn't all either preserved or wasn't all recovered by us. That's the circumstance that we found ourselves in. But if we... the medium-sized vertebrae that we've got to the biggest vertebrae that have been found in the Victoria Fossil Cave, I have no doubt that getting towards six metres is not improbable. There is a little quirk plays into this too. I wanted to establish its weight. And so I thought about, now how do you get the weight of a snake when you've only got the bones? And I thought for a minute, well, like a snake is rather like a piece of hosing. It's in a certain diameter. It just tapers off at each end. And so I worked out the the bulk in the, the mid-section of the biggest snake is probably the size of a dinner plate, even before it's eaten. And um, that would be, as a cylinder, X number of litres of water, which is about the weight of a body. And we were coming up with figures approaching 250 kilograms. Mm.
1: 250
2: litres of water's not that big. Others have looked at it and seen otherwise. 250
0: that, kilograms. That's pretty big. That's mm. pretty big for a snake. <laughs> yeah.
2: It is, it is. Um... And that may be, you know, over the top, but you use a system and I'm quite happy to be corrected if people can do better. Uh, when someone comes up with a, a weight of 50 kilograms, I start to get nervous because there's no way a volume of water fitted into that length at that diameter, tapered and all, is going to be as little as 50 litres. And so unfortunately, the specimen's on display in the South Australian Museum with an acknowledgement to the Barry family for collecting and donating it. And it's an estimated weighs 50 kilograms.
1: Okay.
2: I'm tempted to put a one or two in front of it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that the,
0: the specimen, 150 is certainly plausible. But maybe that specimen that you've got that you think is probably around the three metre mark. I think three, three point
2: three-and-a-half a half metres. Yeah. So may have uh, been around 50 yeah. or so. And you expand because. that to your big case scenario. So, mm. I, I feel comfortable. Mm. Some people are dedicated to making things scientifically. Absolutely, which Mm. has to be the low end of the scale unless I've got absolute proof. otherwise.
1: Mm. Give or take a 40 kilogram wallaby it had for lunch. Yeah. So you'd class that as a python? No. No.
2: We were loaned 13 snake skeletons from the museum to use as comparative material. When I first found it I started doing some entries in the fossil collectors magazine and the sketch that I had done of a skull finished up on the front cover. Neville Pledge at the museum, he used to get a copy, sitting on his desk. Terry Schwan of the herpetologists, trots into Neville's office. What's this? What are you doing with the snake? That's my business. And so he, he arranged for me to go and meet him. And he um, was full of encouragement, obviously an American background. Very quickly he said, well, he said, you're going to need lots of reference material. He said, there's my library. Go for it. Photocopier's over there. Microscope's here. If there's anything you want to use as comparative material, let me know. And so I started making a list and I said, right, there's Matt Sawyer from Madagascar, section of the vertebral column, bigger than Wanambi, the first of this really big type of snake that was ever found, much older than Wanambi, or less the Wanambi narocordensis. And uh, I said, oh, I said, there's this one feature I'm looking at in the skull of Wanambi that I can't find in any other snake, but it hints at being in a, a little snake from the Caribbean, a tracheboa. It's only a couple of foot long, but you look at the pituitary gland in the base of the brain of Wanambi and there's a little pit that runs forward into the palate that isn't present in pythons, isn't present in any other snake I could find except for this little tracheboa from the Caribbean. I so said, I'd like a skull of tracheboa to have a look at. So that came over from the British Museum. And so you know, it's so so neat to have people that encourage. They don't want to just rip your work off you. And suddenly you know, I've never been in a position to um, lose my job over this. I've Oftentimes. never been in a position to compromise my funding stream, my grant applications. I've just done it and enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, purely feel, a labour of love.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: It's just nice to be able to contribute. How long how
1: ago... Sorry, what have you got there, Steve?
0: Oh, no, sorry, I was just going to say, like, the Boa is um, South American, Central American type of boa, um, and they're a fish-eating snake, so I guess the snake that you'd find you'd sort of think would be a water-based... You'll, um, you'll find a reference to that in my paper, yeah. Mm, um, because of its size, I guess.
2: Several things caught my eye that was very different to pythons. The first one was the dentary, was very shallow. It had a flattened shelf that rolled in under the, the lips, which was flattened and narrow, and the teeth sat on a thickened ridge along the side. Python has a rather robust vertical section of bone that the teeth come out of with a very small lip. And so it's a fundamentally whatever pythons are eating are likely to be much harder to handle than what Wanambi's eating. So it's either small prey or it's something he can handle without being kicked to death or his teeth would get jagged out. There just wasn't the robustness.
0: Mm.
2: On top of that, the occlusion of the upper and lower jaws left the skull quite flat compared with most snakes. And so it may have been able to get its head into crevices. In the water, you could catch things in the waters, willows in the caves. But fish was certainly one thing that I considered a possibility. You, you go with that and say worldwide there are no big snakes anything like this size that live in arid areas and we are looking that was at times a semi-arid area which wouldn't have been a comfort zone it would have been too cool and too dry to have been a preferred habitat for such big snakes and the water context was important as a survival strategy would have provided food good chance that if things dried out which they did at times
0: that could have been the the end of the species in that area so it's almost an uh, anaconda maybe related somewhere along the lines of an anaconda anaconda type. comes
2: closer than any other surviving snake or well, present skull sort of proportions number of teeth and the dynamics of it there are other features that don't really put it close but mm. yes for an- australia an- may have had a boa yeah i believe it's boa but then pythons are uh, they're, all boys, boys anyway. yeah, they're yeah, all,
0: yeah. all boys yeah they're all boys but yeah so it's it's a different new age and old age mm. yep. yeah. yeah yeah. so would you you wouldn't know things like whether it was live bearing or or egg <laughs> you wouldn't know anything like that which is nice another another <laughs> yeah no it's just I was sort of differentiating between burrow and python but yeah you wouldn't know any of that sort of stuff so. well you,
2: you consider mm. even on that score now I read something or heard something come over Facebook on skinks in the Andes that had been I had mm. been egg laying but as they had gone into the Andes higher and higher and it got colder and colder, they started giving live birth.
0: Mm.
2: And now the climate's changing, the reverse is happening. And so, you know, where's where's our definition? Where's the cut-off point between that Mm. if you have one species that can be Mm. either over different circumstances? We're learning Mm. all the time.
1: How long ago did Wanambi exist?
2: OK, well, the the deposit at the Victoria Fossil Cave is about 212,000 years. So it's quite recent in geological terms. There are areas of the Victoria Fossil Cave system that are as much as half a million, and I'm not privy to exactly how much distribution or when ambit there was within those, but the Henske Quarry, we did thorium-uranium dating of flowstone from the floor of the cave, and that came up at about 110,000. So it's only half the age of the Victoria Fossil Cave based on that information. Now, you're getting to a point of these are only little snapshots the possible connection with the mythical rainbow serpent, thats not that big a leap to have it still present at that time. But there are other snakes which are considered contenders that have a rainbow sort of effect, maybe hypothetical, but then it's interesting to look at the Aboriginal rock paintings from Northern Australia. And uh, I I think Wernambi may have had a longer, narrower neck than some, and some rock paintings tend to indicate that. Very short tail. It's almost like a bulbous slug with a long neck and a, a head. There are pictures that show snakes like that that don't seem to fit anything alive today. It's a maybe.
0: Mm,
1: Fascinating. Okay. I feel like it's that narrow head. We had a, a sea snake expert on the show and she was talking about some of the sea snakes are quite wide snakes but their heads very tiny. Yeah,
0: but I, I was just going to say all of those things point to it being a, mm. yeah, a yeah, marine <coughs> type snake. Or burrows be. and things, mm. yeah. Because the, the head of an ambi
2: is not grossly big. You talk about a snake even at 12 foot long and it's only just smaller than your hand, considerably mm. smaller than your hand.
1: So mm-hmm. how, did, how did you end up getting this? I mean, I can see why, but what, what, you got the snake named after you. Was that, was that a real honour for you? <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I,
2: I, I knew nothing about that. That just happened. Is that right? Uh, John Scanlon, who authored the paper, obviously acknowledged the work I'd put in. I've read the paper, and yeah, it's a, it's a little bit embarrassing in a way, but that's fine. He actually came in here. I've got his photo pinned up in my studio next door that I took on the day that he was here and went through some of our material and found two little bones that were from the skull of amphibian that I hadn't been able to identify. On, on that score, what I had been doing was rather remarkable. I'd tested out our local paleontologists, herpetologists, on you know, how can I describe the material. I, didn't, I got to a point where I didn't feel I just wanted to give the museum a box of bones. The living with this collecting you become a part of it and there's lots of incidental, anecdotal stuff which has relevance that would be lost if I just gave him a box of bones. I, I could remember just where a certain piece came from at times. Now that in itself was interesting because I had a friend from Bendigo come over and he worked in the vertebrate paleontology in Melbourne for his early career. He happens to be Eric Wilkinson, a fellow that rediscovered Leadbeater's possum back in So in 1961, I think. He was a teenager then. He's still around. I communicate with him quite often. And uh, he wanted to help dig, and that's fine. Gave him a spot adjacent to where we'd found Wanambi, on a little bit of a raised platform. Nice, soft, friable sediment. And he had a big plastic tile glue bucket, 20-litre bucket, that he was carefully putting all his carefully worked-out material into. And when we left, I said, Eric, you know, you, you would like to take that and go through it at home. We'll keep in touch. And he rang me up after he got home and he said, Oh, John, he said, when I got home, there were two Winnambi vertebrae sitting on top of the bucket. They shook their way up to the top. He hadn't recognised them as he was working. And I'm thinking, Oh, great. You yeah, know, wow. And we went over and visited him, collected the bits, went through the leftovers and found several skull elements, which were very helpful also. And um, my concern really at that point was let's reconstruct it as best we can, let's get the vertebrae into the correct sequence. And so a lot of the vertebrae were damaged. We worked out a strategy where there were 17 different measurements we could take from each vertebrae with a hand pair of calipers, no computers those days, all handwritten. And so we had a friend from Tanunda, Alan Nobes. He came down regularly with his son Tim helping with the excavation and he offered to come down and help us with sorting out these bones. So he became our, our housekeeper cook and sometime uh, a dispute resolution master <laughs> <laughs> while we were measuring all these vertebrae. And then we thought, well, the measurements are confusing. How do you put them into a, a sequence even from the measurements? You're just looking at a mess of sparks to me. So I just used what I'd consider common sense and I started little strips of paper and I colour-coded each measurement scaled onto the paper. My logic was, each vertebrae should change just a little bit from the next one as you work your way from head to tail. The head end, the vertebrae are taller than they are wide. Tail end, they're wider than they are high. You get this transposition, the neural canal gets smaller. There's a number of features which you can generalize on, but to get an actual vertebrae that belongs on the left or right of another one, you needed something quantifiable. And we did that. And we kept finding there was some vertebrae that would not fit. All the measurements had fit here, but it had a little hypopothesis on the bottom that wasn't on the next neighbour. And we're going, what's going on here? Then we realised we had parts of two skulls. Mm -hmm. We had two snakes, or a very long, double-headed one.
0: (laughs) Go for the long, double-headed
2: thing. Now, there's about 30 30 vertebrae came from um, uh, Eric's work. And that's fantastic. We still found that within what we'd collected, there was about 20 more that we hadn't recognised was from a different snake, but they got sorted out using this
1: process. So much work goes into it. Yeah. And
2: and at that point, I'm quite chuffed about that, but um, I had been corresponding with Arnold Kluge from Illinois, one of the herpeto-palaeontologists, and he gave me some full-on information, written documents and things that were useful to me getting my head around it. And you sort of look at it, and you use it, and you move on. Well, in 1992-93, over the New Year weekend, the Adelaide Uni had the Second World Congress on Herpetology, and I was a field associate. I was invited to go along. I had to pay to go to a series of sessions, which were way above my head. But um, when I arrived at the university, I'm looking out across Benython Hall and a sea of people there, and there's Mike Tyler's head and shoulders above everyone else. I thought, well, Mike, I'll go and say hi to Mike. And I walk up to him and Mike says, Oh, John, meet Arnold Kluge. And Arnold looked at me and said, Wow, John, what a refreshing approach. Is I use your methodology with all my students now. Oh, wow. And this is what people... No, oh, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. You go, yeah, stick with your passion sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's inspiring. You were saying about the vertebrae of that it's um, six up higher than other, like, than pythons. Is it? Did I the, hear that the, right? The
2: neural spine is is taller than most other snakes. I don't think I've seen one that compares, but, well, it's a muscle attachment, and if it's got a longer spine, it's got more leverage, which suggests that maybe it was able to lift its body in a vertical loop more so than most other snakes, which have a horizontal serpentine sort of...
1: Okay. So it doesn't exhibit uh, lateral compression for swimming or anything like that? Well,
2: it, it has plenty of lateral compression, but the height of the neural spine would not have attached muscles that were a swimming context i don't think unless it was doing a dolphin up and down process and that's not impossible either but it is it's quite different and of course in a cave if you're coming and going in a cave through sinkholes the ability to move in every direction more so it may have been the cave line of the herpetological world
1: Mm, interesting Mm. um any other any other standout finds in in the 17 years you're excavating at that site
2: the other standout finds would include the giant echidnas. Um, they're not enormous. The um, length probably gets to maybe a metre. They're a weird beast. They're a monotreme. They have a skull structure that fits with animals that lived before the dinosaurs. The connection there, there has been no evidence that they exist from 500,000 years ago. There's a furphy one I, don't, I won't enlarge upon here that I think is we can ignore. But Their livelihood is an insectivore and consider that the placentals that came after monotremes and marsupials, the placentals, are sort of next on the list, which include us. The oldest lineage of placentals is the shrews, moles and hedgehogs. They also are insectivores. Now, briefly, echidnas' most notorious feature is their thermoregulation. They run at a very cool body temperature about 35 degrees, and while most scientists say they don't hibernate or go into torpor, I've seen the word torpor used for echidnas, they can actually forage for insects under the snow on Mount Kosciuszko in winter, and there's a record of their core body temperature getting down as low as 4 degrees, and they recover. Wow. Wow. So why are we not finding them as fossils? First of all, they ain't got teeth, and teeth are the first thing you're likely to find because they are the hardest and they preserve. So lack of evidence just might mean they've not had teeth for a very long time. Wow. There's now a couple of bones turn up that fill dots in that are exciting people about, hmm, we only know what we know. Were
1: yeah. there any toothed echidnas in the fossil record, like we had toothed platypuses?
2: No evidence of it. Okay. If, if they are, they're not recognised. There are, there are cretaceous animals that are being put forward as monotremes, and that's highly likely. There is one humerus found down at Cape Otway, which when I sketch around an echidna humerus, an overlayer. We're talking about 110 million years difference, but it's almost a perfect fit. Then you look at the downsides and you say, well, you go back before the dinosaurs and many of the reptiles had similar bones. So there's lots of things to pursue on that. But the, there are a couple of dots hanging in there between pre-dinosaur and today. And I think the echidna is deserving of being investigated further because it could be a fantastic story. Mm.
1: The marsupial lion?
2: Thelica leo was not uncommon mostly as individual teeth, a set of jaws in the cabinet there. They're plastic, you can play with them later if you like. <laughs> <laughs> They've been moulded off a pair of jaws that I learned at Flinders University to do replicas for the specimen that's having a tussle with Wenambi down at the Wenambi centre in the caves. I just happened to have a pair of jaws that were most appropriate to fit the skull. I had uh, pretty neat, made a contribution down there.
1: That's a great model. <laughs> it's like a glass cabinet and inside mm. there's a thylacaleo you've seen it wrestling i uh, haven't it's yeah, that's yeah. just all the all the vertebrae of the snake wrapping and crawling around the thylacaleo it's like an action shot
2: there becomes there becomes an economy necessary when making replicas like that the interaction between wanambi and thylacaleo and um steve would know that what's on top of that one is actually a python skull
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i saw the picture we, yeah. we didn't we didn't have enough material not, not, to not really an australian bubba <laughs>
2: no, 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 no. <laughs> but it fit the bill and the, yeah, the general public are not going to be too fussed about that it's, it's pretty well the size and.
0: thought would now be head were the eyes higher on the head
2: not particularly no no I think they were probably smaller than some mm. but then that probably says not nocturnal but in caves you're as good as nocturnal anyway mm. if you spend a lot of time in caves yeah. I've been looking at Thylacoleo and cave lion I think it's a, a good analogy there has been a remarkable discovery down in Narragut quite recently that's going to turn the world on its ear with thylacoleo that'll come out Mm. later on i'm not party to that but i just know enough that there's some exciting things happening there but a animal spends time in the dark in caves Uh, possums are a a classic big big vibrissae whiskers they are sensors can't see but if they get close to something it's going to give you enough warning that you can avoid a a nasty accident and um, so i think thylacoleo probably had good vibrissae i don't know that i don't know the way namby did
1: Never heard that word for brisae. Eh? That means whiskers. Mm-hmm.
2: How well, actually, it, it relates to the nose, your nose hairs.
1: Right. So we don't need whiskers because we can just stick our hands in front of us because we're <laughs> our eyes, yeah.
0: know, bipedal. <laughs> 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 true, How many marbles have been found? In terms of
2: um, animals, there's pretty well what we found at Henshiki Quarry in Narra plus a scattering of bones from the Victoria Fossil Cave, which is part of the same system, a bit different ages. They have been found... Wellington Caves, up Cooktown Way, Western Australia, so they are just an odd vertebrae has turned up, wide distribution. Mm. But the circumstance to come up with something that is relatively complete scientifically is a lot of study.
0: And always material. in a cave of some sort.
2: Well, that's a little bit the circumstance of deposition. Yeah. Mm. Um, something dies in the back paddock, um, preservation, it's got to be buried in a relatively short time or it, it Degenerates anyway. There's one other element about the age of Winambi that's deserving of comment. The other, the two other scientists I corresponded with overseas was um, Garth Underwood from the British Museum, and he supplied the Madagascar specimen and and the tracheoboa, I think, for me from there, Uh, and um, Olivia Riepel, who was working out of um, Zurich, Switzerland. And um, I got to a point with Olivia that he he offered to try and identify any bits I found that might have been Winambi, and so I'd do a simple sketch of a piece of bone pencil sketch on a pad and um, you know, give a scale a little bit of dotting to give a bit of shading effect for contour post it off to him three weeks later you get your sketch back oh yes John, that's the left prootic. the little notch up on the left hand side of that is the foramen for Nerve V4 which controls the facial muscles <laughs> you can tell that from my wow. sketch, like he was an Einstein type <laughs> character, that's sort of like wow, this is, this is absolutely brilliant I'm not sure that I got all of that perfectly right but That was the the essence of it. And he rang me up in the mid-90s and said, John, I'm in Adelaide for three days. I'm a little bit concerned about some of your measurements on the skull of Ambi. He's concerned that some of the specimens may have been rounded off in a, say, a river situation, which is not impossible in a cave, a little bit of tumbling, they get reshaped a bit. He said, any chance of catching up with you? Well, Julie and I were down here, we were able to just drop what we were doing, drove to Adelaide. Walked into the museum, down in the dungeons. There's the cabinet with one ambies set out in it. Lids off. Olivia's looking at it. And he turns to me and says, John, how old is it? I said, we did the uranium thorium dating. that come up at about 110,000 years, plus or minus a little bit. And he didn't react. He sort of like just focused on looking at the skull, looking at the skull. And I'm thinking, did you not hear me? <laughs> and then he turns to me again, how old did you say? I said, well, no more than 110,000 years. He said, what? He said, the form of a skull I'm looking at predates the dinosaurs. So boa, need mm. your heart out. Now, form of the skull doesn't necessarily define a lot of things, but it's hinting at, it's something very, primitive is a bad term, but it's good for people who will understand what we mean. It, the lineage of that beast is not just another python, an offshoot, something that might have been contemporaneous with it, something that's been around in the earliest of snakes almost. I did see a post recently, you know, Titanoboa?
0: mm, mm-hmm.
2: mm That was a pretty neat one, wasn't it?
0: Well,
1: mm. oh, I, I didn't that. see the post, but, I mean, Titanoboa is yeah, no, the, yeah. mm. the biggest known snake. What was it? Like 9, 10, 14 metres, some people say. Mm,
2: the vertebrae look like they're a metre across. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: that was huge. Were they around with the dinosaurs? I mean, I think the earliest I've well, seen see, is 60 million, so I don't know. The evolution of
2: snakes is not well known. John Scanlon, who I was in contact with on a good number of occasions, Um He um, seems to have a handle a little bit on the transition from the lizard form to the snake form. And we see things change, like you take a human lifespan and see what farmers can do with selectively breeding cattle over a blick in geological time. It's not unrealistic that nature can do these weirdest things over the immense time span that we're talking. Finding the evidence in such a way that you can positively interpret it's a pretty rare event. I think at the time I was working on Monambi, there was only two or three fossil snakes that were in contention to use for comparisons. The rest of them were just using your extant species as a comparison. You had um, was a Diplopeldus, and I've lost the Madagascar one. But yeah, it was as, as, a, as a research field, there was not much to do to find out what everyone else knew about it. No. That made it pretty handy. I had a heap of stuff to work with.
1: Mm. Now, you mentioned that that sketch you drew earlier, um, we just as we sit, we're sitting in your lounge room, and it's surrounded by your artwork, and it's just absolutely amazing. incredible. Um, do you mind if we talk briefly about your artwork? <laughs> Not the, a problem. This is painting up here. You've got a, a short-faced kangaroo standing, and it's near a near a creek or a billabong, and it's got its reflection, and its reflection is its skeleton, and it's just so artistic. It's a beautiful image. Um, it's, they're an extinct animal, the short-faced kangaroos.
2: Yeah, indeed, they they, they they are. Extinct, however, when reconstructing that animal, I was fortunate enough to share some time with Julian Hume, who's David Attenborough's artistic sidekick. And um, he was quite enthusiastic about landscape reconstruction. And so that was morphed out of three days I spent with Julian. And the sort of drift that he puts on things is, we've only got bones and things, and so when it comes to an image, nobody knows what they look like. You can only get the best you can get from a guessing income association type thing. And so I looked at stenurine. There is one animal that is still closely related to stenurine. Swamp
1: wallaby. Wallaby, yeah, the, the only true wallaby. Mm. Different amount of mm. chromosomes.
2: It's got teeth that fit the bilophodont pattern mm-hmm. of the stenurines. And so I looked at that, the colouration, the nose form, and used that somewhat as a model, as my best guess. There is a plausible connection that may have some morphological relevance. Colouration. We think that the extinct kangaroos were living in an open woodland come shrubby environment, much like the swamp wallaby does today. And so you're highly unlikely to be red kangaroo colour or a grey kangaroo colour. Swamp wallaby's got that dark colour with an orangey blush on its chest. And so there's, there's a pattern, which I just used my research as my best guess is That's possibly relevant to that fellow. The thing that's profound about the stenderines is they had very good crunching teeth. They could bite and chew coarse herbage, leaves and nuts rather than grass. They had a short neck. They couldn't reach the ground so well. But their arm, unlike other kangaroos, they can lift above their head, which I'll demonstrate in that picture And dragging down Mm. that, that wonderful undescribed plant with fruit on it that it's eating.
1: And what's really interesting about this painting, and we may even, every time we release an episode, we have to have an image for that episode. Can we use the photo I took of your painting? Yep. By the way, I took a photo of your painting.
2: Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, That one one has never been exhibited yet, and it'll go out sometime, but you're you're welcome to it. Oh,
1: thank you. Cutting edge. Thank you. There we go. There's a Wanambi in this painting as well. He's stalking the stenurine. <laughs> so it's a beautiful image. It's very clever and just yeah, very talented work, mate. Love it, so, love it. So that would be the giant echidna as well in that picture, is it?
2: Yes, it would. Yeah. You can tell from I could the, tell. You can tell from <laughs> the, the down kerm nose. Oh. In reality, this is a little bit hindsight in a way. We'd still have similar giant echidnas in New Guinea. There's the glossus. I was party to the renaming of the Australian fossils because of. Significant differences in the bone structure and the skull. Megalib has become our fossil representatives here in Australia. And um, the New Guinea creatures live in a very narrow habitat band between grass heathland, mountain and forest. They don't seem to be comfortable out of a particular type of vegetation. They're quite widely spread and dispersed, but they're very rare on the ground. And I've heard stories that uh, back during World War Two, the diggers encountered one of these. They set up their sleeping quarters on aired branches with a sling between to sleep in and a giant echidna come up under one of the legs and it collapsed. They'd been underground in the humus rich soil and it actually... Oh. Mm. And so those echidnas are quite woolly rather than spiny. So that picture may not be totally descriptive, but... Okay, we're into an arid end there. They're surviving in Australia. I've used artist's license and I'm happy with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, And what's in the background? Is that a thylacaleo stalking that poor stenurine as well? It is indeed. He's going down. Thylacaleo, did you find any um, thylacaleo or any thylacine, any of the different thylacine uh, bones in your work?
2: Both of them were quite common, mostly as fragmentary material. An an illustration of our lack of exclusivity to the dig was that a a fellow came into the quarry one day and spoke to the owner and said, I'm from the Sydney Museum and I'd like to have a look at where they've been finding bones. And so, somewhat reluctantly, the owners let him go and have a look at where we've been excavating. We came back to our dig, that might have been two or three weeks later, and they're outside the entrance into this tunnel was a pile of 14 thylacoleo teeth that he'd piled up and forgot to take with him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. I suspect he probably wasn't from the Sydney Museum. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It did take us about two years before we found the first thylacoleo material. The one area we concentrated on where the museum had worked, the north end, was absolutely full of little betongs. your burrowing betong It relates to your betongial issue, that's your right. And um, that become a bonanza. We came into the quarry and found the shape had changed and the fissure that the museum had entered through to get to the original bone bed, that hadn't been used much once they had the pitfall trap open for access and could work from, from that end. That actually had holes in the floor where my friend that took me down to Maslin's had said he'd been there and he'd dug bandicoots and things out of the, the hole in the floor quarry had moved into that area and literally taken one side away and we were looking at horizontal face of this pop-marked wall and I like, there's a, there's a reference in a scientific write-up about the, the way this stuff weathers in slow-moving water, spangles and scallops the shapes of the, the rock as it weathers out. It was just all these pop-marks and at one point I could use them to great advantage. I would probably make the... The inspector's a little bit nervous, but it's far enough away now. I can probably talk about it. We couldn't reach much because you're standing on a sloping bed of loose material, with a little band that ultimately produced our first Thylacoleo skull. Part thereof, and um, above that, it was nearly all betongs and bandicoots, um, wombats, hairy nosed wombat, but not like today's hairy nosed wombat. It's actually the same as the holotype of Laceronus nascliffei which is the Queensland hairy-nosed wombat. Except that's another story for another time. All of that was recent. I took out a shoebox full of sediment off a ledge in a rather novel way. There was a sawmill working in the quarry area and we'd been given permission to borrow stuff to help us out, you know, make props and shoring and all the rest of it. I'd take down big wedges, I'd cut up myself and make things safe. Well, I went and found some dunnage that truckies use on their trays about meter and a bit long, 75 mil square probably, and I could actually poke them into these holes and then poke another one in a little bit to one side, a little bit higher up and then climb on the first one, reach down, get another one and poke higher up again and then go onto the second one and take the first one out and put higher up or to one side. So I'm like putting sticks into the, the holes they were solid as it was fantastic. But you could sit on this little beam of wood with your feet against the rough rock face with a piece of straw and an old 78 record cover. It's the only plastic bag I could find on the day floating around in the quarry. And I raked off the fine sediment full of bones off these ledges. And I came up with 52 frog ilia out of a shoebox full of dirt.
1: What's a frog ilia?
2: Their pelvis, the most diagnostic part of a frog in terms of what species they were, co-authored the authored the paper describing the first evidence of Littoria raniformis. Is it the southern belfrog? Yep. First fossil evidence of it. Oh, okay. In there. But that's in an area where there were no extinct animals, so it could have been quite recent. That chamber that the quarry originally opened up, that the children actually entered in, found bones, spread the word, museum got involved. That was back in 1969. And... Um, all of the material there was recent, but as you get to the other end of it, the cone of sediment coming towards you had lots of megafauna material in it. The older sediments sort of met, and so it's two very distinct sediment layers. Beyond where we found Wenambi, there was an area that was pure sand. At that point, instead of having limestone ground with terra rossa growing In a quarry, weeds, which vineyards love this dirt, it was a sandhill. And once we got out under the sandhill, the fill in the cave was sand. Now, there are lots of solution tubes that run vertically down through these limestones from water percolating through. They get a little bit bigger. Sometimes they fill up with sediment. But even a small one the size of your finger is enough. If the sand gets dry up there, it'll eventually just trickle down. A little beetle might crawl through and tickle a bit in. and So you had a a load of sand there. A little story that emanates from that is... um, I went down there with my in-laws. Now, they were fairly much armchair collectors, but they went out and about at times. They did come to the quarry on that one occasion. We had permission to enter. We always let them know that we were coming. We never got refused. And uh, we get to the gate, and there's these strong men standing at the gate. What are you guys doing? Oh, we've got permission to work here today. Are you a member of the club? Mm, what club? No. Castleton Rock Club Rock and Merrill. Oh, well, you can't come in. I said, but we've got permission. We had a standoff for a while. And eventually they said, well, as long as you don't do anything that we don't do, you don't go places where we don't go, I suppose it's all right. You can be an honorary member for the day <laughs> with our family, and Julie's people include. And so we go in and I'm thinking, hmm, that's a bit of a bugger. How am I going to survive this? Oh, well, there's plenty of marine fossils in the quarry and there's a bit of calcite crystals in balls here and there. I can... Yeah, make myself busy doing something but whatever I do I'm going to be within sight of our tunnel into our cave system and if someone else is there they're not going to be alone and sure enough late in the day three people turned up and started scratching around oh, I move in alongside them I have a haversack, some paper, a couple of trowels, jemmy bar it's all this sandy material and uh, I'm sort of looking and oh, yeah, there's a bit of bone these guys were sort of talking amongst themselves and then this one fellow oh wow look at this Got a marsupial rabbit's tooth. a Dagger-like tooth, about two inches long. And I'm thinking, hmm, kangaroo incisor. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. Turned out to be the local um, fossil club chairman. I don't know how, it didn't seem to be a big event, but he had a a display in town and all the rest of it. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that's fair enough. Got millions of them. (laughs) And leave it a block of rock out. And I'm looking at the complete skull of a Tassie devil with both lower jaws in place. Wow. So I slide a bit of paper down in and wrap it up and gently put it in my bag and pull another rock away. And there's a wombat. There's a giant echidna skull. They went away and didn't know I found anything. Far out! That's the best <laughs> best base collecting I've ever Whoa. had, right under their noses. And...
1: So you've got you've got a knack for it.
2: Well, that's us. <laughs> 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 no other word for it at that point. But I could have I could have got excited and say, "Hey, look what I found!" Well, what would have
1: happened then? <laughs> Is it amazing? All the work that you got done, and it was just all. Oh, I'm assuming self-funded. you never yeah. had any funding assistance? Never asked for it. That's incredible. Mm. Some people won't lift a finger without funding.
2: Well, you look at what life's all about these days. And I gave a talk in Queenstown, New Zealand, back in 2017 at our KVEPS conference, and I finished it off with something like, you know, guys, I've never had a concept of failure. That's sort of look at me, what do you mean, never had a concept of failure? I said, well, I've just done stuff. If I've been to the quarry and I've found nothing, that's still valuable information because I know there was nothing there. It's not failing. You know, people have a perception of, you know, it, <laughs> related to dollars is probably the worst thing you can do. I said, I've never had to satisfy a funding stream or a supervisor. I should do what I do. But I collaborate with the unis and the museum, and it's been a great journey.
1: Mm, I love that. Speaking about words of wisdom, do you have any other words of wisdom for somebody that might be a young person that has a passion or a fascination like you do with prehistoric animals, fossils, and things of the like?
2: Well, firstly, learn to be observant. Learn to be objective. Don't expect to find a diprotodon roll out of a riverbank into your arms. You're likely to find a little splinter of bone somewhere at the base of a cliff maybe that's part of something that's up there. So look up, have a look around. That may be a complete operative on skull just sitting out of sight. It's not going to be in front of you. You've got to do the hard work. The little tiny bits recognise a bone from a piece of wood or rock. I've collected in a number of areas where it's as boring as and you might spend all day there and find one little piece of bone that's been polished by wave action. And you think, hmm, that's not much. But on occasion, not far out of Taylor Bend, I came across several bits of this polished bone. I rang up the CEO of the Meningi Council at the time and said, it could be a sensitive area, it's a reserve. Am I going to be in trouble? I just don't move much. So I got a screwdriver off and started just prying away. And I came out with a jawbone with these dog like teeth in it. Oh, that's neat. That's in marine sediments with echinoids and brachiopods and corals. I take them to the museum, donate them to the museum. Metasqualodon woody, the oldest known whale from Australia, wow. about, about 40 million years. That's right. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Steve was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Um,
2: and so you know, you, you, persistence is a little bit of something. You 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 adventure and persist. And I haven't had time. I've had even. Scientists say to me, oh John, when you're finished at Henshaw's Quarry, there's a spot we know where it could be worth looking. And I'm going, I'm only going to live one lifetime. There's so much there that I can put context to that's valuable. I guess it's, it's almost not over the top. Both the Wanambi and the collection of echidna material have been described as priceless. If money worries you, I've earned very little in my lifetime in the big scheme of things. But I've donated two priceless collections to the museums and there's lots more stuff to come.
1: That is living. That's fantastic. Mm. What are the laws on if you're on private property and you find a specimen, you give it to the museum? Is that the, That's obviously what you've done. That's the right thing to do. But if someone was to find something like that, they'd let to keep it? or
2: It's a bit of a grey area. I collaborate with the museum and the universities. I recently came across some diprotodon material and um, it was hanging out of a quickly eroding gully Next door there's a plaster cast with three neck vertebrae and that big sitting in it waiting to be prepped. And um, I'm telling both the museum and the university what I'm doing. If I'd left them there and go back after a rain, they might have been gone. That's getting your eye in, getting the confidence, the technology, the techniques of being able to manage this gear. A good avenue to get involved in, uh, Flinders University have fossil sorting days at times contact them if you're keen to learn a bit more you can work in alongside of people and get your eye in on what fossils are all about you're in amongst the scientists who knows where it might lead but it's not an easy journey i found it easy in the context of i've never had a funding grant fail (laughs) (laughs)
0: well done no disappointments And, and, and,
2: and scientists need a funding stream to earn their living doing their stuff and that's a tough call so you've got to be good You've got to be prepared to do the hard yard. Recognise your bones. If you're, you're eating a chicken from KFC, don't just throw the bones in the bin. Clean them up properly. You're not going to waste all that nice food that's going in the bin and sort the bones out. And it could get be a our book. army. Is get that a, what
0: you're saying? <laughs>
2: get, a, get, a, get a book and learn the names of those bones. They've got femurs and tibiotarsis and a lot of the things in our body are still replicated in birds. The whole lot. There's a common blueprint back there somewhere learn about it you're mm. learning about your own body
1: that's that is words of wisdom i do have to ask we did appear in the same documentary a couple of years back you and i it's a documentary about the mainland thylacine sightings did you have a sighting of a thylacine do you want you don't have to share this if you don't no no no, to.
2: No, no 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 this is this is all a part of the journey it's all a part of you know if you want to put it down as a failure that's fine we were at a meeting at geranium which was about 56 k's northeast of here until late in the night. It was Australian Plant Society. It had been raining that day. We'd had about two and a half inches of rain. Driving a little Ford Laser on the dirt roads out there was a bit tenuous. My wife happier driving and wants me to sort of look out for kangaroos. So at about 11.30 on the way home, dark as each this night, totally overcast, no stars, no nothing, and we come to a big sweeping bend in the road. And I say, roo! As a kangaroo bounds across the road. Only a smallish one. Well, by the time Julie sort of looked up, the roo was in the scrub, on the left-hand side of the road, and there was this other animal following it, like a ghost. Its head, shoulders, back and rump were totally immobile and the feet were paddling away, keeping up with the kangaroo going flat out. And Julie says to me, what do you think it was? I said, well, if I didn't think otherwise, I said, we might have just seen our first thylacine. They have a quite a rigid body and it's documented that they had this gliding action. That set us on a, a trail. The next day, we went out with a bag of plaster, and we made plaster casts of something like 60 footprints on the roadside. And one of them had five toes. And dingoes and dogs don't have five toes, so do claws up the wrist. Thylacines do. So you get quite excited about just the one, but then, you know, the prints are all over the place. There's lots of fox stuff in amongst it. We didn't know what we were looking at at the time, so you just do everything. You find a good print, you, you capture it. I um, took the cast into the museum. and was quite disheartened when they said, oh, it could just be an overstep. We always take the negative side of things, you know, this is (laughs) exciting. (laughs) So um, uh, a few weeks later, our friend from Bendigo, Eric, came over with a chappie that used to be manager of the Serengeti and then moved to Canada. And he had some interesting stories about cryptic animals and so on. And he was going to find this beast. So we go out there with spotlights. And here he is with literally like a good motorbike battery clipped to his waist and this big spotlight crashing through the scrub at night. And we are going, really? (laughs) You find animals like that, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Along the way, he told me a story about the cougars in Canada, in Montreal, been extinct for 250 years. And there'd been sightings, but nothing verified. A good number of people had seen them at times within the boundaries of Montreal. And he said uh, they acquired night vision equipment. And they put sentries up in these park lands where sightings had been seen. And this one day, I think it was a young woman, was out there at night with binoculars, night vision, watching as the local drunks sort of walking away from her down the pathway through the park lands. And there's a cougar coming towards him. Well, this will be interesting. What happens when man meets beast in the dark at night? The cougar just dropped to the ground, laid motionless. The guy walked along and stopped virtually within arm's distance of it, which it is fly, had a pee, did it up and walked on and didn't know it. <laughs> and you expect to find animals by tramping through the, the bush. <laughs> um, I, I think that's a, a moderately verifiable storyline,
0: mm.
2: but don't expect them just to land in your lap. As a result of our sighting, we were set up a... Um, there's a fellow that was up at Parachilna that was into sightings of strange animals and very much a um, imbiber of amber fluid... And um, I don't suffer from that malaise, but (laughs) I think you must be able to see different things at times with a dose of Ember Fluid. (laughs) The same applies to some groups I've been involved with from uh, the Dandenong area, east of Melbourne. But um, interesting stories. So we set up a motion sensor that Wally had loaned us. It actually belonged to a guy from Victoria, but he was happy to pass it around. And we went out for six months. We drove out 10, 15 k's out of town every other night, checked the camera. 35mm film, some days you get nothing, some days you get a whole film. The days you get a whole film full of stuff, windy days, branch moving, (laughs) thanks guys, (laughs) Uh, learning curve and I thought, I'm going to have to try and beat this. So I made my own camera up using a paint pressure pack that I could recharge, a piece of dripper line that led into a baffle that I set up in a box that activated a lever that would touch the shutter of the camera that was sitting there waiting for action and hooked a lever up to the bottom wire of a fence where animals come and go.
1: That's awesome.
2: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) One of the first photos I got was a group of three red-necked wallabies. Not supposed to be up here, not supposed to be north of Narricourt. Later on, this is only a few hundred yards from where we had our sighting, a friend from Bendigo came back over, and a son-in-law of mine walked along the fence on the eastern side of the road where the animals disappeared, and Eric found a pile of bones. Relatively fresh, still blood on the bones. Guess what? There was a redneck wallaby. Whatever it was that ran across, there was a new farmer's fence. Mm. The wallaby would have hit the fence. We were sitting in the car going, not going to put the windows down, you know, there's a scary hair on the back of your neck sticking up, you know. <laughs> and there was all this action happening out there. And so we didn't find proof of thylacine, but redneck wallabies are out there. Now people are noticing them. To a, to a farmer, they're mostly kangaroos, you know, the, the finer details. That leads to a lot of connections with very interesting people. This and at court is a great thylacine watcher we dropped in the saw a couple of days ago way back from Mount Gambia. Can't avoid the, the chatter. Um, but the crunch came for me a number of years later. It was just after New Year and there was a documentary on telly to do with the Shroud of Turin, Christ's burial robe. And I was sort of half interested. They were talking about 19 different scientific processes. They'd been able to borrow the robe and do these tests on it. To confirm its antiquity. The only evidence that said that positively couldn't be Christ's burial robe was carbon-14 dating. Now, I've been looking at carbon-14 dating, thinking of the thylacine in the Nullarbor Cave. Mundrabilla. And um, back in the mid-90s, just probably a year or two after that sighting, we were blessed with a visit from David Ride from the ANU. He happened to be the director of the Western Australian Museum at the time that skeleton was found, that mummified carcass was found. We're sitting at the breakfast table and quite unprompted, he said, oh, he said it was interesting, back in the 19, 1966, a lorries came in and with this foil packet, opened it up and it's a thylacine carcass and he said, but it was strange, he said, we did carbon-14 dating on it, it had come up at four and a half thousand years old. But he said, to look at it, it was full of fresh blowfly lava larva casings its left eye was still there, its tongue was still there, and it stank like anything he said, caves are wonderful at preserving things and ongoing I think there are some variables with carbon-14 the potential for contamination and this has been borne out in more recent time now they've got thermoluminescence and other dating processes which if you get a series of different dating processes and they agree you get quite comfortable but some of the earlier ones had foibles contamination issues particularly and so the dating process itself is much more refined than it used to be and um, yeah that was a, a an interesting reflection that a scientist you yeah, carbon-14, this is the holy grail of tools. You work with what you've got. What is hard for a scientist is that new evidence comes along, new processes become available and how do you adjust what was learnt in the past to be perhaps not quite as right or a little bit different. There's a great reluctance to change those things. Whether it's proof of a recent one or whether caves really do preserve things that well. The one over there was not much bigger than a fox incidentally. Got casts of teeth from those and they uh, the thylacines in the Henske quarry, I made an observation that no one else seems to have considered, probably considers as good a word to finish that on. We have a lot of tassie devils and quite a lot of thylacine. The teeth of a tassie devil have a orange peel crenulation surface, sort of like ripple. The teeth of the thylacines from Henske's, smooth as. The present day thylacines have some level of crenulation. The ones from Western Australia are a bit in between. We think That's because we've got so many individuals represented from the Victoria Fossil Cave, Henskies and so on. It's unlikely that it's just sexual dimorphism, the crinulation or not, or you'd have all females in this population and all males in that population. There's one tooth we've got from Curramog, which is likely to be Pliocene, that could be two, four, five, six million years old even. That has an extra cusp on it. That's likely to be a different species. There's one described from there. I don't have the name on the top of my head. But there's a whole gamut of things take place. And I think... Be, be inquiring, don't, don't give up to, you know, someone says you can't do something. If you have the passion, explore it. You look at some of the really serious contributors in science. I'll, I'll pick Reg Sprig, for an example. The book Rockstar was written about his lifetime. And uh, how he got started and how Mike Tyler, is another one, got started. Just going and being there in these organisations, helping out dusting off specimens doing whatever and learning and building up your knowledge until you can actually seriously take on board the studies that give you the qualifications it's not going to be handed to you on a plate and there's plenty of learned people out there that are so polarised their information is not very useful to the holistic nature of the world it's got to be taken into context
1: i love that so don't be put off don't mm. let those people put you off be inspired by people like you very very happy to mingle and share mm. mate thank you so much for your time awesome. today absolutely <laughs> loved it yeah we um We've been talking for hours before we even started this podcast, and I'm blown away, mate. I loved every moment of it. Thanks for having us at your amazing home. We didn't even get to talk about your awesome property on the outside. We'll have to come back and do it again. Yeah. Um, but, mate, thank you. Yeah. You're most welcome. And, guys, welcome. thank you for listening.